Hear the word of the Lord. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Gracious, merciful Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word which is a lamp to our feet, which guides us, inspires us, but more than that, it dwells inside of us as you dwelled on this earth 2,000 years ago. Bless us this morning, encourage us, strengthen us by your spirit. In Christ we pray, amen. So uh, this morning, uh, we're kind of hitting pause on the Gospel of Mark. We've been going through the Gospel of, of Mark, and we, we're hitting pause, and we're not going to pick the Gospel of Mark up again until next January. And the way our, our preaching schedule kind of works here at, at St. Andrews uh, is that uh, in every January, we're, we're going to be preaching through a Gospel. So the last couple Januaries, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark until we get to the summertime. The summertime, we preach through New Testament letters. Last summer we did Philippians, the summer before that we did James, and then in the fall we, we do an Old Testament book, and uh, so we rotate into the various genres of the Old Testament. We actually started with Jonah, last, last fall was Ruth, this fall actually we're going to start Genesis. But one of the things about this rotation that I like is in a given year we're going to be in the entirety of Scripture. It's so easy to get stuck on like one book of the Bible for 10 years that you forget the rest of the Bible exists. And so this is kind of a way for us to kind of go through different parts of the Bible, but also hit all of scripture throughout the year so we can actually hear the whole counsel of God. And, and this morning, this summer, we're going to start going through a first John together. <laughs> and as we start this book, I just want to give us some really exciting, thrilling background information because everyone knows background information on a book is super fun and exciting. Um, and so, but, I, but it's important as we kind of dive into this book to, to recognize some, some background details that will help us understand what, first, what John is writing here. So first, importantly, it's written by the apostle John. John's the same apostle that walked with Jesus, same apostle that was in the inner circle with, with Christ. Um, he knew Jesus very well. He also authored, he authored five different uh, New Testament books, he, the, the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. He's really creative in his titling of his letters. Uh, and then lastly, he wrote the book of, of Revelation. And uh, one of the things that's really important about that particular fact is that like any author, John uses particular words in particular ways. And so knowing the other things that he's right will actually help us interpret what he's saying here in 1 John because John actually can be a little confusing at times. He talks in circles and he repeats himself and he seems to even contradict himself at times. But we know that God's word does not contradict himself. So he's not doing that. So we just need to do a little bit more, more work to understand and knowing his other writings will actually help us uh, interpret him. You know, another really important uh, introductory note is the, is the answer to the question, well, who is he writing to, right? When you pick up any letter, 
you need to know who that person's being written to, otherwise it's kind of confusing just to get kind of one side of the communication. Well, you know, most, most letters in the New Testament are written to like one specific church, you know. Paul, the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth, in Galatia, in Ephesus. Well, here in John, 1 John is one of, the, one of those exceptions. And it's considered to be uh, one of the general or Catholic epistles because it wasn't just written to one singular church, but is written to the church at large. And, and it probably at, at first it was circulated uh, around the Asia Minor area, which is present day Turkey, which, uh, you know, if you want to know where that is in your head, you know where Israel is along the Mediterranean. Turkey's kind of up, up north hugging the Mediterranean. And that's where the church in Ephesus and Galatia were, and that's where John was. And so uh, it's likely he had at least those churches in mind, but it was for the char- church at large. Um, lastly, and this is a question we're going to answer uh, th- throughout this, this series, is the question, well, why is he writing this? What made him want to write this letter to, this, to the church at, at large? What was going on that he thought was important for him uh, to put his pen to paper? And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a handful of different reasons, but primarily the, the church was experiencing some false teaching at the time. It had been creeping in, and he's trying to remind the people uh, in the church and to root them in the truths of the gospel that he heard, he's trying to pass on to them. And you know, one of the interesting things about this, but you know, the church at this time is that he's writing to is probably filled with second, maybe even third generation Christians. So these aren't people that had walked with Jesus or saw him teach in, in person. Um, and so he, someone who did walk with Jesus is, uh, who knew Jesus intimately, is reminding them of their foundation, these foundational truths, that, right, the, the things that you've been taught by the apostles, he's telling them, are true. Right? And their foundation, ultimately, is actually rooted uh, in the incarnation of Christ. Their foundation as a church is rooted in the profound truth that God became flesh. Right? That which was once veiled, that which was not for the common or Gentile, in the incarnation is now laid before all humanity. God is the God who draws near, and this means that he is the God who actually wants to know you and be known by you, and this is a profound truth that he's getting to here. You know, I remember uh, once I transferred to a new school, and uh, one of the hard things about being the new guy in a school, or it's a new guy in a new town, or, you know, being at a giant party and you don't know anybody, is, is that you don't have your people, right? You don't, you don't have your people you can gravitate towards, but as soon as you meet just one person, the person becomes your friend because it's the only person you know. And, uh, and the next day, what do you do? Well, you go, you seek that person out because they're kind of this place of comfort for you. And we still do this. If you go to a wedding or a big gathering, you immediately look for your friends, those people that you know. And I think there's something innate in all of us that we want to know people and we want to be known by others. We were made for it. To borrow from John here, we were actually made for fellowship. This word fellowship is an interesting word. I think oftentimes it can feel like a thin word, right? This kind of Christianese language that we talk about. There's the fellowship hall. We're going to go to a fellowship dinner. We're going to do that fellowship thing. And it can kind of speak of the shallow relationships. And maybe that's the connotation you have. It's how I often think about that word. Uh, But this is not what that word means in Scripture. It comes from a word that is talking about deep, profound intimacy, communion, partnership, where all of life is shared. This is what we all long for in life. This is probably at least one reason why you're here this morning. Uh, Because you want connection with others. This is maybe one reason why you're gathering in a church could be difficult for you. Because uh, for those of you who found those deep relationships, this is easy. But if if you're here and you don't know anybody, it can be really awkward to walk into a church. Uh, Because 
is really hard because you want those deep relationships, right? You need them, but you're lacking. And this desire for fellowship is, is hardwired into us. We were made for communion, for fellowship, with connection with, with each other, and ultimately with God. And, and what John is showing us is that this is the very reason that Jesus came, to restore fellowship between us and him, to bring us into fellowship with the, with the Father. And that fellowship with the Father isn't just a, you know, me and my personal Jesus kind of thing, but it's a, it's a corporate communal, communal thing. And, and our desire for intimate relationships can only be met in Christ and fellowship with his body, with his people. And so John is, is going to help introduce this letter and show us these truths in just two simple steps this morning. First, he's going to show us uh, his fellowship with Christ, his, his deep communion with Christ. And then he's going to invite us into that same fellowship. So first, John bears witness of his fellowship with Christ. And John kind of sets this up uh, by reminding us just who this person of Christ is, just who this person that he has fellowship with is. From verse one, he says this, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You know, the language that he begins with here is language that we know well. It's in the beginning. It's creation language. And I think there's two aspects of creation he has in mind here. For one, he's talking about the creation, the beginning of, of all things. I mean, this is actually very similar to how John himself starts the, the gospel he wrote. In John 1.1, it begins this, like this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And he says, and, and then all things were made through him. So when John here is talking about the word again, he's talking about the beginning, he's thinking about the creation of all things. He's saying the thing that is from the beginning, he now here calls the word of life, uh, he says in verse two, was made manifest. It came in the flesh, right? The thing that's eternal steps into history. So who, who is this word of life, eternal one who's stepping into history? Well, we know from John's writing, he's, he's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the word who came in flesh, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. So John is alluding to the, the creation of all things, but there's a second aspect that he's speaking of too that's very important because he's not just called the word here, but he adds the word, the word of, of life. And this is, listen to what John wrote in his gospel in John 12. He's, this is Jesus speaking. It says this, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. So this word of life is a different aspect of who Jesus is, right? He is the one who brought life to be in the beginning uh, first creation, but not just first creation, it's just talking about recreation, right? The resurrection, this is the, the second thing that she's referring to here, the, is the, the reference to, to the ministry of Jesus on earth. It's the ministry of Jesus that John has actually seen with his eyes, right? That he's looked upon, that he's touched with his hands, and it's this thing that he's recognized that he proclaims. Uh, John is saying, listen, I was here for it. I was there at the beginning of Christ's ministry, and the, and the message was one of new creation, of what John wrote about in his gospel, about being born again, right? New beginnings, new creation, the word of life, that he who created all things has actually come back to bring about the redemption of all things, and he is the only one who has the power to do it because he is the original creator of all things, right? He's the word of life that spoke all things into existence and who now begins to write all wrongs. And so when Jesus came into the world, this is who he was. This is, this is the one that John is saying I, he has fellowship with. God in the flesh, creator of life that was made manifest. The eternal has stepped 
into history to bring about a new creation. It's kind of this beautiful summary of, of the life and the work of Christ, but it, it also still, maybe for us, seems like a really strange way to present this information. Right? Why, why is John speaking of it in this way, in this kind of repetitive, over and over uh, way of speaking about what he has seen and heard and touched? We get it. Well, the reason why, at least one reason why John is speaking about this is because of the context that he's writing. Uh, he's likely dealing with some Gnostic tendencies that have kind of crept into the church. And, you know, the Gnostics were this group of people that caused a, a lot of problems in the church. And we're not going to get into it today, but I think they're causing a lot of problems in the church today, too. Um, and, and so what are Gnostics? Well, the word itself comes from the word, uh, Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And they kind of combined this, this pagan idea and this Greek philosophy that had two kind of primary principles. First, they taught that the way of salvation was through a superior knowledge. You had to have some secret knowledge to be saved, not just what was given to you in Scripture, but some, something secret uh, that, that not just anyone could receive. And second, they considered like physical things like creation, matter, to be evil and the spirit to be good. And so the physical body was bad and the, the spiritual body, whatever that is, is, is good. And, and this idea has led to several heresies throughout the history um, of, of, the, of the church. And one of the primary ones that he's dealing with here was that they did not believe that Jesus had a physical body. And this idea, you know, God couldn't become man because the holy, right, can't dwell in something that's unholy. So they say Jesus is maybe from God, but he's not God himself. And so this was this kind of Gnostic belief, this kind of dualistic way of thinking about life between the physical and the spiritual, and this is why John is speaking about his senses, right? Seeing, hearing, touching. Jesus was physical, and he used his senses to experience life with him. John is saying, listen, the, the false teachers in the church are teaching lies to you. John is saying, I knew Jesus. I saw him with my eyes. I, I touched him with my hands, and I was there when he walked this earth, when he taught the gospel. I, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is real. He's not some spirit floating around. He said, I had fellowship with him. I, I communed with him. He had a deep intimacy and relationship with Jesus. He, right, he, he went to sleep near him. He ate with him. He walked with him. He ministered with him. He saw him die and, and then rise again. And he was sent out to proclaim eternal life by him. He had fellowship, communion with Christ. John is saying this, Jesus became flesh so that this was possible. Right? He was fully God and fully man and some divine mystery to draw near to us, to fellowship with us, to commune with us. He didn't view us beneath himself, but he came and put himself beneath us. This is profound truth, right? The God who created all things, the God who is eternal, the God who came and, and gave birth to creation, came in the flesh so that you might have a restored, rebirth relationship with him, that you might have the light of life. How wild is this profound truth? The God is not off, aloof. He's not unknowable. Uh, it's actually because of, of God that anything is knowable at all. And unlike the Gnostics who preach that you need some secret knowledge that isn't accessible, he, come to make, he came to make his message known to all the earth. And even though humanity squandered the first creation, he still came back as the second Adam to give birth to a new one that not even we can mess up. Right? He has come that we might have eternal life and enjoy him forever, to give us fellowship and unending joy. And this is the fellowship that John had with the Son and the Father, that he is both known by the one who created all things and he knows the one who created all things. Have you ever stared off into the stars or 
just considered the largeness of the universe and thought about how small you are, how much of a kind of a speck in, in the created uh, order that we are. And the universe is massive, right? And the known universe is only a small part of what actually is make, made up all creation. And as massive as it is, as unfathomably large as this, all this creation is, the one who actually made it was born a man. Why? So that we might have fellowship and life with him and joy with him. This is wild. This is what John is pointing us to see this morning. This is the fellowship that he had with Christ and he was made alive by him, given new life by him. And even though we have never seen or touched him like he did, what he's trying to say is we can have just as deep as fellowship with Christ as John did. Which, you know, sounds a little crazy, doesn't it? It's one thing for John to say this because he actually was with him. He, he put his hands in his side and in his fingers. Uh, he hung out with Jesus. He saw his resurrected body. He saw him ascend up into heaven. How can we have that same uh, fellowship with Christ like John did? Like, how can this church, they didn't know him either. How could they have that fellowship? Well, this is exactly what John is pointing us to, is this deep fellowship that we can have with him. And this is the second aspect here that John is inviting us into the same fellowship with Christ. Verse three, he says this. He says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. John is telling us the answer to that question. He says, if we have fellowship with John and the apostles, that we have fellowship with the Father and the Son. He's saying, listen, I'm proclaiming uh, that which I am so that you can have fellowship with me. And as you have fellowship with me, you can have fellowship with the one I am proclaiming. So what does this mean to have fellowship with John? John is, is dead. At least these guys could have some degree of fellowship with John because John was actually alive writing to them, but we can't. John's dead. And uh, you know, what, he's, what he's saying is we have fellowship with John when we believe what he proclaimed. Right? If we believe the testimony of the apostles that all that I said about Jesus is true, that he is the creator of original life and new life, that he was fully God and fully man, if we believe that, then we are united to John. And not just to John, but to all who believe the same apostolic message. Right? It's the message that unites us to the global church, both, both the past, the people that are dead, and the, and the future church, the, the church that hasn't even come. And perhaps even more miraculous than that, not only is he saying, are we united to, to John and the church and through this message that they proclaim, but we are united in fellowship to the Father and the Son, which says, listen, you too can have an intimate communion with the Father and the Son as the Spirit of Christ dwells in us. He's saying, God has drawn near. He's saying, remember the incarnation. You know, if we can remember before Jesus came, before the spirit of Pentecost came, you know, the way that you drew near to God is we would have not been able to, to enter the place of the Holy of Holies in the temple, right? But in the incarnation of Christ, the veil has been removed. The holy has walked among us in Christ and now the holy dwells in you by the Holy Spirit. And this creates a, an ability to have full fellowship with God. It isn't less than even what John had. But we have the same spirit living inside of us and our faith is maybe even greater because we didn't get to see Jesus, but we believe in the testimony of the, apostle, of, of the apostles and it is a testimony that unites us to the apostles and God. 
This is a profound truth that you didn't have to be alive 200 years ago to know Jesus. But if you believe the gospel, that you know him and he knows you, and this is the power of the message that gospel, of the gospel that John proclaimed and, and that I proclaim to you even now. And it's, it's through this message of the apostles that we have intimacy with God, which honestly, it, that could sound underwhelming to us, right? It may sound disappointing. Uh, can a message really be that powerful that it can draw us into communion with, with God? And, you know, uh, maybe you want something else to make that intimacy possible. Maybe it's a deep feeling that you can't shake. Maybe you want a, a Mount Sinai moment where you, where you can see the power of God on full display in some mystical, magical way. But what we find here is that it is the message that John is proclaiming that actually creates fellowship and partnership and communion with God. If you think about you know, marriage for a second, or even just deep friendships that you have with other people, what is the thing that creates a deep intimacy with you and that other person? Is it not a message, right? A message that says, I will never leave you. Right? This is why a couple that's been married for 50 years actually has a much deeper rooted love than a, uh, than a couple that's dating or, or newly wed. It's a message that has grown in word and deed over time, deeper than physical intimacy, but this kind of fellowship is there long after physical intimacy fades. And this is why one night stands and, and lust and pornography are so fleeting because although they have the look of intimacy with touch, they don't have a lasting intimacy that comes with the message that says, I will never leave you. This is the same with God. It is a message that the apostles proclaim about Jesus. Listen, that he became man, that he stepped out of eternity into history, that he walked the earth, that he suffered, that he died, that he rose again. Why? Because he will never leave you. He will do whatever it takes to save his children, even if it means dying, even, even if it means suffering. God will never leave or forsake his children because he is the one who is near, not just in spirit, but body, physically, he is here. And at the end of our fellowship here, what do we find? That this fellowship brings us into everlasting joy. Verse four says this, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John is writing and trying to draw us into fellowship. Why? So that his joy may be complete. And his joy is complete when we listen to this apostolic message and trust that Jesus was who he said he is. Right? The joy is complete when our longings for intimacy find their end in Jesus. How interesting is it that he doesn't say that our joy is complete? But what does he say? He says his joy is complete. So often, I think we think about joy in terms of just personal happiness. John actually did not live uh, what we would call a happy life. Lots of suffering uh, he experienced in his life for his faith. Experienced very few comforts of this earth. And he's talking about his joy being complete because his joy is much deeper than what happiness can offer but it's a lasting joy that doesn't ebb and flow with good days and, and bad days, but it's a joy that comes from the unfading glory that he's experienced in the resurrection life, the life that's everlasting. And, and when he sees others come and taste that resurrection life, it is a, a joy that is never ending and, and it's un, unfading because it means other people are coming and tasting and seeing and other people are coming into fellowship with him and, and the Father. And this is the everlasting joy that John wants for all of us. And what I want you to hear as we begin this study is the same thing that John wanted the church to hear almost 2,000 years ago. That as wild as it seems, as much as we will write on paper that we believe this, we need to get this into our hearts, that the it's a profound truth that the God who created all things, that holds all things together, actually wants to fellowship with you. He wants to commune with you. He wants to be united to you. 
He is not far off. And this is true on your best of days and on your worst of days. Our God is the God who drew near. And what proof do we have? It's in the incarnation that God is a God who came and dwelled in a human body. In some divine, mysterious way, in some insane way, this is what God has done. The proof is in Christ, the God in the flesh who came that you might have life, resurrection, life in him. May we be a people who embrace these truths even on our worst days. May we grow in intimacy with Christ as we grow with each other. And we, may we be a people who proclaim the same message of the apostles to the nations that they too might have fellowship with God and his church. Amen. Pray with me. Merciful, gracious Father in heaven. We give you thanks for your word. Your word that speaks of this other world that we do not always understand. Encourage our hearts, strengthen us with this profound truth to know that you are God who wants to be known by his people. May you help us to break free of whatever barriers, whatever things that hold us back from embracing you. May we draw near to you as you have drawn near to us. In the Christ we pray, amen. Friends, I invite you uh, to stand as we respond to God's words, saying the words, I believe together.